Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. The Resurrection of Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, down through chapter 28, verse 15. These are the words of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remembered while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb may be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. Our grace God and Father, we thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from which we have no hope and the world has no hope. Open this word to us today by the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Matthew writes this text with two great realities in mind. Christianity is completely worthless apart from the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus, and Christians will spend the rest of history defending it. Matthew begins by showing us that most of the easy attempts to explain away the resurrection do not take into account the details of how Jesus died and was buried. First of all, there is no possibility that Jesus' body was whisked away between his death and burial, and no possibility of confusion over which tomb he was laid in or which body was his. We're told that the women were watching Jesus' crucifixion from a distance, verse 55 and 56. Then we're told that, Je uh, that Joseph secured Jesus' body immediately after his death and placed it in his own personal tomb, which was a new tomb. It was a hewn out of rock. In the ancient world, they didn't bury people like we do. They would put them in a cave, or they would make their own cave like Joseph, who was a rich man, did. This was his personal tomb. And they would put more than one body in the tomb. So sometimes you would have an entire uh, uh, family wrapped up in linen with spices and then placed uh, in a particular cave. But this one was new. It was reserved for Joseph himself, and Jesus was placed in it. There were no other bodies there. And the women were there when Joseph placed Jesus' body in the tomb. That's in verse 61. That means there was no possibility of confusion over which tomb Jesus was in or which body was his. And that it was the right tomb with the right body is also shown by the Roman guard that was posted at the Jewish leader's request, in verses 65 and 66. So, <clears throat> we have something that is very important in any case of law, and that is an official chain of custody. Here you have a chain of custody officially from the Roman soldiers who guarded the cross to the Roman soldiers who guarded the tomb. Everybody knew which was the right tomb, and everybody knew there was only one body in the tomb. There was no dispute. Secondly, the official story put out by the Jewish leaders that Jesus' disciples came and stole his body away at night may sound plausible, but again, if you look at it in light of the facts who, that were admitted by all at the time, it simply does not stand up. And remember this. <clears throat> this was the official story put out by a group of very shrewd leaders who had already successfully orchestrated the arrests, sham trial, murder by crucifixion, by order of a Roman governor. They had already orchestrated all of that. They have met, they have considered the situation, and they have decided that this is the best story that they can put out to counteract the claim of a resurrection. And they had every incentive to put forth their best effort to quash any claim of resurrection. They decided at the time their best shot was to bribe the guards to get them to say that Jesus' disciples came and stole his body while the guards were sleeping. You can see that in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 28. Now, this is very significant in and of itself. The fact that they decided on this story means, once again, that there was no question about the right tomb or the right body. The leaders have unwittingly provided an airtight chain of custody and foreclosed any question about the right tomb or the right body. It means also that the most important historical fact 
has been established beyond dispute. The tomb was empty. If that wasn't established beyond all doubt, there would have been no need for the leaders to put out the story that the disciples had stolen his body away while the guards slept. There would have been no need to bribe the guards with a great sum of money, no less, to back up that story. They had to come up with that story because of one reason. The tomb was empty and the body could not be produced. It also means that the contention of modern liberal theologians and secularist scholars that the resurrection of Jesus was the later invention of Paul and that the earliest disciples did not believe it or teach it, that argument is really foreclosed. If the resurrection was a later invention and if the earliest disciples did not believe it and teach it, again, there was no need for the Jewish leaders to come up with a story about Jesus' disciples stealing his body away. There was no need for them to bribe the guards to back that story up. But the leaders, in fact, had to deal with the immediate claim and preaching by the disciples that Jesus was raised from the dead. And after consulting together, the leaders determined the best shot, again, was to put out the ancient equivalent of a press release claiming that Jesus' disciples had stolen his body away while the guards were sleeping. Being stuck with that story, it is not a very good one. It is not a very good one. Because the closer we look, the worse the story looks. The closer we look, the more plausible the resurrection becomes. The story that the leaders came up with, on the other hand, is not plausible. First of all, the, room, uh, the, the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers at the governor's command. Failing in such a mission did not mean court-martial, it meant death. Remember in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi. They're singing hymns at night and suddenly there is a great earthquake and the doors of all the cells open up. When the guard awakens, he sees all the doors open and he takes out his sword to kill himself. Why? Because the penalty for losing the one you're guarding was death. He saw the doors open, he thought the prisoners were gone, he knew he was a dead man. And so he was gonna take his own life. This is why the Jewish rulers not only had to bribe the soldiers with a great sum of money, but also guarantee that they would intercede with the governor in verse 14 of chapter 28. The soldiers knew they were dead men if somebody stole the body away. Second, the guard's story involves an inherent contradiction. We slept through the whole thing, but here's what happened. Third, the idea of the guards sleeping through the rolling away of the stone is simply not believable. Tomb raiding was a problem in the ancient world. And that's why they would roll a great stone over the mouth of the tomb. Now, these stones were huge. They were very large. And it took several strong men, at a minimum, to roll them. Joseph isn't doing this by himself. He's a wealthy man. He has servants there who are doing things that he is commanding. And so it would take several strong men to roll one of these stones. That's not a process that could be carried out quietly. It's a process that involved a lot of commotion. So even from the official angle, 
The story about Jesus' disciples stealing his body away is more than implausible. It's really ridiculous, as anybody in that day would have known. But there are more problems to the story when we look at it from the perspective of the disciples. First of all, what did the disciples have to gain by putting out a resurrection story? What did they have to gain by putting out a resurrection story? Well, we know the answer to that. Three centuries of persecution. That's what they had to gain. It was not a politic move. Second, claiming that Jesus had been resurrected simply did not fit on the psychological map of the disciples. The disciples were defeated and scared. They fled when Jesus was arrested because they knew that being associated with an accused rebel could get you crucified with him. The disciples knew this firsthand, as did every first century Jew. And this is why Peter, the disciple bold enough to follow Jesus into the high priest's house, denied even knowing Jesus. Peter wasn't being a weenie. He was being sane. Furthermore, crucifixion of a would-be Messiah was not a new thing. This is not the first time this had happened. This happened quite a bit. A number had been crucified already. It was the typical fate for any Messiah figure who showed any kind of significant mojo and constituted any real possibility for causing a genuine rebellion against Rome. So the Jews had faced this outcome before. And here's the way they dealt with it. Number one, crucifixion of one's Messiah meant that he was not the Messiah. For Messiah, by definition, meant a successful warrior and king who brought Israel out from under Roman hegemony. Second, the solution to a crucified Messiah hopeful was very simple. Get a new Messiah. And the disciples had the perfect candidate, Jesus' half-brother, James. He was related to Jesus and he was, in fact, a great leader. In fact, he became the leading figure in the Jerusalem church. He was the perfect candidate to take over the movement, but that's not what happened. In addition, claiming that Jesus had been resurrecting did not fit on the disciples' theological map. And here we need to understand that the idea that plays so well in the modern world of a Messiah who is a flower child, kind of a spiritual guru, who brings inner peace and forgiveness, but is unconcerned with this worldly considerations, such as God's people suffering under tyranny, such a Messiah and such a salvation was utterly foreign to the first century Jews. The conservative Jews believed in a spiritual salvation and forgiveness of sin, yes, but they did not believe in a spiritual only salvation. That was no salvation at all to them. Now these kind of ideas play well in our modern individualistic culture where we have all of our individual private spheres of reality, but they did not play at all in the first century with the Jewish people. They, the Jewish people in the first century, were too this-worldly, much like the early Puritans and Protestants were. Salvation to them meant salvation in this world as well as the next. Conservative Jews believed in resurrection, yes, 
but they believed in a general resurrection at the end of history. The idea of the Messiah being resurrected by himself in the middle of history, even though it was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, as Peter will later preach on the day of Pentecost, he will turn to Psalm 16 and other places where uh, David prays, you will not allow my body to suffer decay or my soul to remain in Hades. And Peter points out, David cannot be talking about himself. We have his tomb to this day. We have his body to this day. It was, in fact, predicted and prophesied in Scripture, but they did not see that. They did not appreciate that. And so the idea of the Messiah being resurrected in the middle of history and then the rest of people at the end of history was not something that they had picked up on. It simply had no place on their theological map, which is why the disciples simply could not comprehend what Jesus was saying when he again and again stated in straightforward language that he was going to be crucified and then on the third day raised again. He said it again and again. It did not register to them. It simply did not make sense on their theological map. So we are left with a very ironic situation where Jesus' enemies took the prospect of his resurrection, or at least of his faked resurrection, more seriously than his disciples did. Now, no one took the prospect of a real resurrection seriously, but the leader's paranoia made them fear a fake resurrection. But either one was the furthest thing from the disciples' minds. And so all of these alternative theories explaining away the resurrection look good only from a distance. The closer we get, the worse they look. The deeper we look, the worse they look. And when we turn to Matthew's account, as well as the accounts of Mark and Luke and John, we have to recognize that these accounts are not the accounts that anyone would make up if you were going to come up with a resurrection story in the first century. If we were going to come up with a story, if they were going to come up with a story, this is not the story we would have come up with. First of all, you would not have the initial witnesses be women. Women in the first century Roman world were not recognized as legal witnesses. So we would have all the critical witnesses be men. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts nor are his ways our ways. And so the initial witnesses are women. And the only other initial witnesses are lying pagan soldiers. Number two, if you were going to construct a resurrection story in the first century, you would iron out all the apparent inconsistencies between the various witnesses. Now this is one of the telltale signs of a made-up story. The witnesses have it all down pat, and it's too smooth. Having spent 25 years in the courtroom, I can tell you that any time you have multiple witnesses of an event, or in this case, multiple events, since no one witnessed the actual resurrection itself, but only the angel and the earthquake, and then Jesus appearing to various people at different times, sometimes together and sometimes in various combinations, Anytime you have multiple witnesses to a series of events like this, and they are being completely truthful, you will have apparent inconsistencies in the story. 
Now, these consistencies aren't necessarily real consistency, inconsistencies at all, but they will seem that way on the surface. As you look and investigate deeper and deeper, the inconsistencies will begin to resolve and disappear. But you will always have them on the surface. Now, sometimes these apparent inconsistencies, such as we have in the gospel stories, whether it was one woman or it was two women or, you know, disciples who went to the tomb. Was it Peter? Was it Peter and John? Was it some others as well? Those kind of surface inconsistencies. Sometimes they're just a matter of a witness focusing in on certain details that stand out to them as being significant and leaving out other details that don't seem as important. For example... Consider what Luke writes in Luke chapter 24. It's the scene where the women come to the disciples and tell them that the tomb is empty and that Jesus has risen from the dead. In verse 12 of Luke 24, Luke says that after receiving the report of the women, Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Peter. A few verses later in verse 24, Luke reports that certain of those, in other words, Several of the disciples who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said. So which is it? Did Peter run to the tomb? Or did several of the disciples, including Peter, run to the tomb? Well, we see that it is the latter. In verse 12, Luke only mentions Peter because that's his focus at that point in the narrative. That's what he wants to draw to our attention. He wasn't saying that only Peter went. But he only mentioned Peter because that was the only thing germane to the point he was trying to make at that point. Now, if Luke can do that, one writer, in the span of 12 verses, other witnesses and other gospel writers can do the same thing. We do the same thing. When we recount an event, we don't recount every single thing we can recall. We state what is germane to the occasion. If we were to recount the same event in different setting, we might mention additional details and leave out others based on the context and the setting. But we would be telling the truth on both occasions. Any inconsistencies would only be apparent inconsistencies. And here's the thing. Imagine that you have four friends. Four friends that you know very well, four friends that you trust very well. You know that they are very, very trustworthy. And you also know that they are people who pay attention, who are careful about what they see and about what they say. And let's say that they're on a trip and they witness some startling event. Uh, perhaps they were attending the Atlanta Olympics, if you remember back in the 80s, when there was a bombing. Perhaps they were there. And they're all writing you letters or emails telling you what they saw. When you read these, you're probably going to find surface inconsistencies between what your four friends are telling you. But are you going to conclude based on that that your friends are lying? That's not going to be your conclusion because you're going to remember. I know these people. They're trustworthy. They're honest. And they're not sloppy. They're careful. They're careful about what they say. Your, your working assumptions going to be, these are surface inconsistencies, and if I explore further, if I can talk to them further and bring out more and more detail, these surface inconsistencies are going to disappear. They're all telling me the truth based on what they saw and what stands out to them as being important. Now, we need to remember this. 
when the gospel accounts were written and circulated in the first century, the witnesses, most of them, were still alive. And the events were recent, I mean relatively recent. It was still in the lifetimes of the people then alive. Just imagine if someone today came up with a fabricated tale about President Reagan or Nixon or Kennedy or even Roosevelt. It just wouldn't go very far because too many people alive then and witnesses to the facts then are still alive now. So the story as it appears in Matthew and in the other Gospels has the earmarks of historical events being written down as they happened and as related by the eyewitnesses. Notice the absence of theologizing by Matthew in this passage. Notice the absence or any reference or allusions to the Old Testament here. And compare that with the rest of Matthew, including the passage that we just considered last week on Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew is full of Old Testament references and theological statements about the significance of the events going on until we get to the resurrection. You have none of that in this account. You have all of a sudden a bare narrative of simply what happened. No Old Testament allusions, no theological statements about what this means. Now later, Peter and John and Paul and others will tell us in their epistles the theological implications of the resurrection of Jesus. But here and in the other Gospels, we have none of that. They just give us the facts. Nobody actually witnessed the resurrection. What they did witness was an empty tomb and an alive Jesus appearing to them on various occasions, being recognizably him, the same Jesus, having the scars of the crucifixions in his hands, and yet doing things that normal people in a normal body cannot do. Appearing, disappearing, showing up through walls, coming into locked rooms when nobody has let them in, appearing to disciples in such a way that they cannot recognize him, and then suddenly they can recognize him. It's the same Jesus, and yet he is different. And this makes it clear that he was not resuscitated. It's not like Lazarus where he comes out of the grave the same way he went in. He's, he's come back into his body. He's resuscitated. Lazarus is going to die again. No, Jesus has burst out the other side of the grave into new life, glorified life, that nobody has ever seen or experienced before. And at this point, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are simply saying, this is what happened. So what are we to make of all this? How shall we make application? Well, we need to recognize and accept several things about the resurrection of Jesus and about the gospel story as a whole. And we need to let these things sink in. First, God could have shown the resurrected Jesus to everyone. He didn't. That wasn't his purpose. We're told in the New Testament that the resurrected Jesus appeared to certain persons, handpicked ahead of time to be witnesses of his resurrection. You find the apostles discussing that in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. God could have done it another way. 
He didn't. God has his reasons, and his reasons are always good. The resurrected Jesus could appear to everyone today. He doesn't. He doesn't even appear to us, his own disciples. Again, God has his reasons, and his reasons are always good. Second, we need to recognize the nature of unbelief. We need to recognize the nature of unbelief. If the resurrected Jesus appeared to everyone then, and if he appeared to everyone now, people still would not believe unless and until the Holy Spirit opened their hearts to believe and quickened faith within them. Consider what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's telling Timothy there that when he's dealing with unbelievers, those who contradict the faith, that Timothy must not quarrel, but he has to be gentle. Because he has to understand what's going on when he's dealing with unbelievers. He says, you have to be humble and gentle, Timothy, if perhaps God will grant them repentance. God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So there are a number of things involved with somebody coming to faith. First of all, coming to faith is not simply a matter of believing a few facts. It's the matter of a turning around in one's life. Turning around from walking away from God to turning to God through Christ to face him and to pursue him and walk with him. That's what repentance means. It means to simply turn around. So God has to grant a turning around before anybody is going to believe. God has to grant this turning around before they can know the truth. God has to grant this before they can come to their senses. I don't know if, if any of you ever lived uh, a significant portion of your life as an unbeliever. For all you young people coming up in Christian homes, uh, I'm glad that's not the case with you, but for those of you, like me, who lived a significant part of your life without being a believer, you know what Paul means here when he talks about coming to your senses. You look back on your life as an unbeliever and you just go, how could I, how could I think the way that I thought? How could I live the way that I lived? How could I deceive myself? And you look back and you realize that a lot of times you're deceiving yourself which means that in, in some way, at some level, you know you're deceiving yourself. You're saying self, and you're telling yourself a bunch of lies. And then your other part of yourself is believing your lies that the self is telling yourself. And all of that's going on in you. That's craziness. But that's exactly what happens. And so you know what it means to come to your senses and to escape the snare of the devil. This is not saying that everybody's possessed, they don't have a will of their own or thoughts of their own. What it's saying is, is that our disposition of heart before we have the Holy Spirit is such that we have an antipathy toward God. We do not want him in our life. We want to walk the way that we want to walk. And having that bent of mind and that bent of heart lines us up just perfectly with the devil and his purposes, which makes us very, very easy to manipulate. And that's what Paul is saying. They're in the snare of the devil. They're being held captive by him to do his will. Consider Pilate and Herod. We're told in the Gospels that they were political enemies. They didn't like one another. They didn't get along. Until 
the trial of Jesus until Satan decided this guy has to go. Why on that day of all days did Pilate and Herod suddenly become friends? Each of them making their own decision for their own reasons, but suddenly, all of a sudden, their purposes line up and they're friends because it is easy for the devil to manipulate rebels. That's why. So when we think about the nature of unbelief, consider the guards who were posted at the tomb. They witnessed an earthquake. They witnessed an angel who was in garb, shining. They witnessed the angel roll away the stone, something that would take a number of strong men. They witnessed an empty tomb, but they still did not believe. They knew, but they did not believe. You get that? They knew, but they did not believe. They actively suppressed the truth. They took money in order to knowingly propagate a false story. Consider another set of guards, those who were posted at the cross. They did believe with far less to go on. Yes, they saw a darkened sky, they witnessed an earthquake, they heard Jesus crying out to God the Father on the cross, but they did not witness an angel or an empty tomb, and yet they said, surely this is the Son of God. Remember what Jesus taught us in the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. In that story, after the rich man has died, he cries out to Abraham, and he asks him to send someone to warn his brothers. Abraham makes a very interesting reply. He says, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man says, but you don't understand, Abraham. That's just a book. Pages, words, dead things. If somebody comes back from the dead, they'll believe. Abraham says, no, they won't. You don't understand the nature of unbelief. He says if they won't believe Moses and the scriptures, they will not believe if someone comes back from the dead. Such is the nature of unbelief. It is not primarily an information problem or an evidence problem. It is a disposition of heart problem. So we should never believe that our sharing of the gospel is sufficient. But neither should we believe that it is insufficient. God alone is sufficient, and God always is sufficient. So we should never feel the burden of stating the gospel just right so that someone will believe. We should never take upon ourselves the burden of creating just the right circumstances or just the right church service, or just the right whatever, so that a person will believe. We don't have that ability. Don't take that burden on yourself. But nor should we feel pride in having stated the gospel just right. If somebody responds, it's not us. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So we should feel a sense of, of responsibility to share the gospel, but we should feel a great sense of freedom 
We don't have to take the burden on of saying it all just right or anything like that. God saves. God saves. And God does not fail. Finally, we need to realize that God has decided that the gospel will be spread and the nations converted by proclaiming the gospel message. In other words, God has decided to save the world by a foolish message and a foolish method. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. He said it's in the wisdom of God. God knows what he's doing. It's in his wisdom that the world through its wisdom is not going to come to know God. And it is in God's wisdom that he has decided that through the foolishness of the message preached, those who believe are going to be saved. So Paul says, here's the bottom line. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says that we need to understand that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, than the wisdom of men, and that his weakness is stronger than the strength of men. And he asks us to look around at one another, and he says, not many mighty, not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble. He says that's the Christian community. He says God's chosen the foolish things. He's not calling us to be fools. He's saying he's called those who are going to appear foolish in the eyes of the world. He's called us to put to shame the wise. He's chosen weak things to put to shame those things which are mighty. This is the way God has chosen to do it. And the purpose is so that no flesh will glory in his presence. So know that of him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Know that if you believe in Christ, God has given you this faith. He has given you this faith. Know that if you're a Christian, God has brought you. He has put you here. Know that his hand is upon you and rest in that. And as Paul says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, part of this sharing of the gospel is providing an apologia. Not, not an apology, not an I'm sorry, but a defense, a reason for the faith that is in us. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Always be ready to provide a reason for the hope that is in you, a reason for you living the way that you live. And sometimes it comes up in very, very simple ways. I remember a number of years ago, it's been years now, we were in the process of refinancing our house. We were working with a, a local uh, mortgage company, one, one of these big companies, local, privately owned by a husband and wife. And um, they were calling us one time in the house to, um, I don't know, ask us something about it or tell us something I can't remember. But one of our daughters answers the phone. She asks for one of us, and our daughter just says, yes, ma'am, just a moment, please. It's routine, habit. I get on the phone, I don't hear anything about the mortgage. What I hear was, wow, what was that? What, I mean, they want to know what explains what just happened with your teenage daughter there. That's what they want to know. Well, I have to give a reason for the hope that's in me and the hope that's in my teenage daughter. Simple things like this happen all the time, which give an opportunity 
to make some mention of the, the gospel. And part of us giving a reason is giving a reason for believing in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I hope that this sermon will help bring your own thoughts together to show you how by any kind of normal historical standard, the resurrection of Jesus stands up. And all the stories against it, they look good from a distance, but the closer you get, the worse they get. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. <clears throat>